Welcome to Our Lords. Should I switch mics? Is that kind of ringy? Is that all right? We okay? I refuse to wear the Garth Brooks headset. So I am old school with my Bible here and a handheld microphone and no Garth Brooks microphone. Sorry, probably works better. Welcome to Our Lords. Glad you're here. If you're visiting, we're delighted to have you. I'm going to try to pull it together because that song did me in. Anybody else? God of our fathers and mothers, connecting us to what God has been up to over many, many generations. And what an honor it is to, to be a part of that, isn't it? We get to be part of what God is doing throughout history all over the planet. We get to be part of that. And if you're not yet a part of that, we welcome you into this local church, this local family. Get in on it. If you need to do business with your maker today, this is a great time to do it. We're going to be uh, ending early today for the sake of groups, and Connie and I will be talking about that in a bit. And we're going to end early so that you have time to learn about groups, join a group. We're actually going to pray for our group leaders. We're in week three of our series on revival. Lord, do it again. And are we stuck in the past? Is that what we're pleading for? Lord, rewind it and do it again? No. The scriptures say in Psalm 77, we remember your work, Lord. Habakkuk, the minor prophet, says this in Habakkuk 3, Lord, I have heard of your renown, and I stand in awe. O Lord of your work, in our own time, revive it. In our own time, make it known. So what we're doing is aligning ourselves with what the scriptures model and teach. Lord, do it again. Lord, Show the nations how amazing you are. Transform us. Send us out into our workplace. Send us out all over this region. Send us to the nations of the world. So we are talking about revival and different aspects of it. We started, if you remember, revival is not about us. Revival is about God. So we started the series the first week by looking at the glory of God in revival. Second Chronicles 7 illustrates that the glory of God first and foremost is the center of all revival. When we long for revival, we pray for it. We're saying, Lord, come and display your glory. That's what we looked at the first week. The second week, we looked at the word of God and revival in Nehemiah 8. And we saw that right in the center of biblical revival, 700 years before Christ was the Word of God being spoken, being explained, being applied to life. And so today we're going to look at the prophetic ministry of Jesus and revival in John chapter 4. And then next week we'll look at the Holy Spirit and the church and revival. And if you'll note here, it's very intentional. This is all God-centered stuff. It's Trinitarian, the glory of God, the Son of God, the Spirit of God, and we get to be part of this. So today we're going to look at 
this beautiful passage, John chapter 4. And before we do that, I want to uh, remind us why we're looking at this. Revival has different synonymous terms that you could use. You could call it breakthrough. You could call it outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You could call it visitation. Scriptures use different language for this, and it all really means the same thing. Lord, would you come and get involved? That's what we're longing for. Lord, come and get involved. The day is dark. The enemy is bringing his own revival, is he not, friends? It's a revival of darkness. And so what we're saying is, Lord, you're not going to let him get the last word. Bring a revival of glory, of goodness, of healing. As he comes in like a flood, we ask you to come in like a tidal wave. Have your way. Many parts in the church, I mentioned this before, will ignore revival. They'll say, ah, we, that's a little too messy, it's too risky. People can get disillusioned if you long for it and pray for it and it never comes. And so sectors of the church say, we can't do it. We would rather focus on the daily, the diligent, the mundane, the disciplines, and that is good. It's good to focus on those things, but it's not good to ignore the teachings of Scripture that urge us to pray and plead and fast and long for revival. Amen? And so we want to do both. We want to be diligent. We want to be disciplined. We want to spend daily time in the Scriptures. We want to pray. We want to do those things that are really within our reach, but then we also want to say, like Jesus taught his disciples, bring your kingdom. That's a revival prayer. Bring your kingdom, Lord. Let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus taught his disciples and he teaches us to pray, to contend for revival in that amazing prayer. So today we're going to look at him. And John 4, as many of you know, is loaded with all kinds of things. There's multiple threads that run through this chapter and we could talk about any and all of those. But I want us to focus on one particular thread, and that is Jesus as the prophet of all prophets. He's on display in this passage, in his power, his tenderness, his interaction with this woman in Samaria. And so I'm not going to read the whole passage. We're going to go in and dip into places, but let me just give kind of a, a synopsis of what happens in John chapter 4, verses 1 to 42. Jesus goes to Samaria. He doesn't go around Samaria like many of his uh, fellow rabbis. He goes right into the heart of Samaria. Jesus meets a woman at Jacob's well, a well that was established about 2,000 years before Christ. And he interacts with a woman at the well, strikes up a conversation. They get to know each other. There's an interaction. And Jesus discerns prophetically a future worshiper. Probably not what others would see, but Jesus sees in her an emerging worshiper. Jesus reads her mail. He shares the secrets of her heart. And she runs back to her city and says, you guys have got to come meet this guy. I think he's the Messiah. And revival breaks out in her hometown. And her village, the people come and meet with Jesus and spend two days with him. They won't let him go for two days. And they're wanting more. 
And the text is explicit there. What's happening is just like she came to faith in Jesus, she's brought her townspeople and they're coming to faith in Jesus by his word. So he's probably speaking prophetically into their hearts and telling them things that no one else can know except what he hears from the Father. And revival breaks out in that Samaritan village. So let's look at some of these threads that run through the passage. And I would say first and foremost, like every text in the gospel, this passage really isn't first and foremost about prophetic ministry. It is about Jesus. It is about the Word made flesh. The passage is explicit about He's God. He knows people's hearts. He alone can give grace. He alone can give salvation. Yet at the same time, He's weak and He's thirsty. So really, John 4 is about the God-man Jesus. And so everything we're going to talk about is in that context. The glory, the power, the weakness, the tenderness of this man, Jesus, the prophet of all prophets. So what we're going to do here is we're going to walk through this passage and look at several insights regarding his ministry, who he was, what he did. It's interesting reading a number of commentaries over the last week, how many people were willing to say, Jesus is a great example of evangelism. He shares the gospel. He shares the news about himself. He offers living water to this woman. But not one of them said, he is the model for the church today. If Jesus isn't the model, and if this text doesn't illustrate for us how we should do evangelism, where else are we going to look? Amen? He is our model for servanthood, for love, for character, but he's also our model for evangelism. So as he did it, so should we. He is God in the flesh, and if this is how he chose to do evangelism with this woman at the well, then I don't know about you, but I'm in line to learn from him. Amen? So that's what we're going to look at. There are several insights. It's immensely practical. In verses 1 through 4, the first thing that Jesus does is Jesus goes. Verses 1 to 4 illustrates that Jesus goes somewhere. He goes into Samaria. And what's happening in this context here is Jesus and John the Baptist have been doing ministry down in the south. And Jesus feels drawn and led by the Father to move north and to go do ministry. And he was a rabbi. And traditionally, folks would skirt around Samaria. But Jesus chose to go right through Samaria. And he ends up at this well having an interaction with this woman. Now, why is that a big deal? It helps to know in the historical context that the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. It predated Christ about 700 years. In short, what was going on was when the Assyrians invaded this region, the Samaritans intermarried with them. And the Jews were just incredibly frustrated. They said, we're God's people, and yet you're intermarrying with these Assyrians 
this is an unforgivable, unforgivable sin, and you're adopting their gods. And so it's a very deep-seated animosity. You see that? This is why it's so important. Secondly, about 300 years after that, the Samaritans decide to build their own temple. So now you've got a rival temple. You've got one in Jerusalem, and you've got one in Samaria. And so this is deep-seated animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't play by the rules. He goes right through Samaria, and he talks with a woman. So it's two strikes against what he should be doing traditionally. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful to see. He travels about 20 miles. He is thirsty. The text is also going to show that he's hungry. So here he is, famished, exhausted, sits by the well, and this woman walks up. He strikes up a conversation with her about noon, and verses 5 through 9, he meets someone. You can see it on the outline up here. He not only goes, but he has in his mind, Father, you have brought me here today to meet someone. Who is it? Who is that person? And sure enough, she is there, a Samaritan woman. He interacts with her. He gets to know her. She gets to know him. He strikes up a conversation. And the uncreated word of God is reaching out to this woman on the margins. And she says in the text at verse 9, chapter 4, verse 9, how can you, a Jewish man, ask me for a drink? I'm a Samaritan woman because Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans at verse 9 there. And the text really means Jews will not share utensils with the Samaritans. They will not even drink from the same cup or share the same plate with a Samaritan. It's that bad. And she's humorously saying that. Here you are talking to me, and yet our people won't even dine together. They won't even share the same cup. Even here at the well, they won't share the same cup. So we're seeing Jesus display the fact that God's love knows no bounds. He's always going to people on the margins, isn't he? The traditional religious leaders are saying, you can't do that. And he goes, the Father's doing that today. Why can't I? The Father loves this woman, so I'm coming to meet with her. And you cannot put any trappings on the love and grace of God. So Jesus is consistently overturning religious traditions and boundaries. Friends, this makes me a little uncomfortable. And so I want us today to think about what boundaries are you pushing up against? What Samaritans are you going to at work, at school, during your week? Who are you reaching out to? Where are you going? Who are you meeting? Who are you interacting with? Jesus is giving us a clear example of his heart in evangelism. I know that some of us here are doing some things to get out of our comfort zones like never before. And listen, I acknowledge everyone is crazy busy. Who has free time in their schedules? All right. Wow. Wonderful. Two of you. That's great. Two out of 225. 
Most of us don't. But I think what Jesus is illustrating here is we can make time. We can. And even if it's just pushing a little bit of time in our our week at work, asking the Father, Father, who are you reaching out to here? How can I partner with what you're already doing at my school, in my workplace? Anne Blaisdell, Carolyn McHenry, and others are going to do ministry at Mabel Bassett Women's Correctional Facility. That might be pretty radical for some, but they're doing what Jesus is doing here. They're going to be with the marginalized, and they're seeing the power of the gospel impact people's lives. Anne, Carolyn, are you in here? You are, right? I'm hearing stories, and others are being drawn to that. So I think it's wonderful. It's happening. The Holy Spirit is doing that among us. Looking back here at verses 10 through 15, a third thing that Jesus does as he illustrates bringing himself, bringing the gospel to this woman as he interacts with her. Verses 10 through 15. I'm going to read what he says at verse 10. They're talking back and forth. Jesus answers her. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well? And with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus says to her at verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give will never be thirsty. The water that I give him will become a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. So Jesus is just interacting with her, deepening the conversation, and really acknowledging that this woman is thirsty. We're going to see something in the text in a moment that reveals the kind of thirst that she has. She's thirsting to be loved. And Jesus is connecting with her and setting her up to say, I know the source of love that you're looking for. And he's saying, I am that source. It's amazing the word that's used here, gift, at verse 10. If you knew the gift of God, it's the same word that's used in Romans 5 when Paul talks about the gift of salvation. It's dorea. And so what Jesus is saying here is that the free gift of salvation, the free gift of water that you're thirsting for comes from me. Will you receive it? And her heart begins to open up. And then he uses a word picture, doesn't he? This this well that he's sitting by becomes a living illustration, and he references a couple of passages in the Old Testament because he knows the Scriptures. Yes, he is the Word in the flesh, but he also disciplined himself to learn the Scriptures. And so he's referencing Jeremiah 2, where God is saying, you have forsaken me, the source of living water. And so Jesus is telling her, look to God, who is the only 
source of living water that your soul thirsts for, that you long for. And he's going to say here that he is actually God. One commentator says this, in John's gospel, there are passages where Jesus is the living water and others where he gives the living water. In this chapter, right here, the water is the satisfying eternal life mediated by the Holy Spirit that only Jesus, the Messiah and Savior of the world, can provide. So we see this scene. It's much like the one in chapter 3 previous to this. Nicodemus comes interacts with Jesus, literalizes everything that Jesus is saying. He says, you must be born again. Nicodemus scratches his head and says, how do I do that? Can't climb back in my mama's womb and be born a second time. And he says, ah, you're taking it literally. There's a spiritual picture here. The same thing is happening here. He's explaining to this woman, I'm not speaking in literal terms. I'm speaking in spiritual terms. Come and drink of what I have to give you. It's the grace of God. It's the satisfying life of God that only I can give. Rich conversation. A fourth thing here, verses 16 to 26, as Jesus is showing us how to interact with people in the love and grace of God. He discerns and clarifies. Verses 16 to 26. Look at what he does here. This is rather startling, really. They've been conversing back and forth, interacting, and look at verse 16. Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus says to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you're a prophet. He got her attention. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Then he says at verse 21, Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship that what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship God must worship in spirit and truth. He's discerning many things here, but one of the main things, in addition to seeing her heart, is he discerns a future worshiper. You can research around this, she is probably at the well at noon because none of the women want to be with her. She's an outcast. She's alone. Normally when you're at the well, you're doing it later in the day, five, six o'clock when it's cooling down a little bit, it's easier, and you're with a throng of people. This woman is doing it at a strange time and she's dead alone. And Jesus, with great tenderness, looks into her heart because he's a prophet. And he says, go get your husband. And she gives a partial truth, doesn't she? We don't know why she said it. If she was shielding, I don't have a husband. 
Jesus commends her and says, yeah, you're telling the truth, but there's more to this picture. You've had five husbands, and all of a sudden, she's really interested in what he has to say. Why? Because that is the way God designed this. Jesus, the Son of God, the greatest evangelist who ever lived, used words of knowledge in his ministry. I'm not saying this, the text is. How have we gotten so far away from this? Does anyone want to do evangelism like Jesus? I wanna live like him, I wanna serve like him, I wanna be like him, but wow, I wanna do evangelism. I wanna share the gospel with people the way that he does. And if this is the way he did it, I'm inviting you afresh today. Let's do it the way he did it. Immediately we say, well, this is Jesus. He's the unique son of God. He's the word of God. He's God in the flesh. But he also depended on the Holy Spirit. He depended on the Holy Spirit. He, John 5 says he only does what he sees the Father doing at verse 19. And so he's modeling that for us today. So as we are out and about in the world, do we have that mindset? Father, what are you doing? I want to do what you're doing. I want to see people the way that you do. I want to hear you share secrets about other people. I want to do it with grace and love and maturity and tenderness, just like Jesus did. He didn't exploit her, did he? Some people have abused the prophetic gift and exploited people. And that breaks hearts. But just because that happens doesn't mean that we toss it out. No, we recover the root. Jesus did it this way. Jesus, help us interact with other people the way that you do in this passage with love. I don't know if I can make it through this, but I want to share a story. Can I share a story with you? It's a classic John Wimber story. And if you're interested in this, you can buy his book, Power Evangelism, and he writes it in there, and it has become kind of a new classic story. But Wimber was on his flight from Chicago to New York. He was in a, a really busy time of life where he was doing lots of church planting workshops and mobilizing the church around the country. And he was looking to put his feet up, put his chair back, and relax from Chicago to New York. The father had other plans. <laughs> so he leans his chair back, he looks across the aisle, and uh-oh, the Lord's drawn his attention to this man in a business suit across the aisle, and the Lord starts whispering things to Wimber in his spirit, giving him his heart for that man. And Wimber was like, ah, this is just inconvenient. Can I get a break? and yet the father was, was working. So he kept looking over at this gentleman, and the man ends up looking at Wimber, and they have one of those awkward locking of the eye moments, and Wimber sees something in his mind's eye. He sees adultery over the man's forehead in letters, so much so that he rubbed his eyes, and he was like, does anyone else see this? It's like a Sharpie across his forehead, adultery. So Wimber leans back into his seat, and he's like, Father, what do I do with this? And he looks back over at him, and sure enough, the man's hawking him again, and they meet eyes. 
And the Lord whispers something else to Wimber. He says the name Jane. That's not the real name, but that's what he writes in the book. So John's pulse is racing, and he leans over to the guy, and the guy's like, what do you want? What do you want? And John says, does the name Jane mean anything to you? And the guy turned pale like he'd seen a ghost, ashen, eyes big as saucers, and he says, who told you that name? And Wimber said, God did. God told me that name. And the guy says, we need to talk. Can we talk? And so they're on a jumbo jet. They go up to the cocktail lounge on the upper floor there. And Wimber and this total stranger are sitting knee to knee. And the guy says, what is going on here? And John said, God is speaking to me because he loves you. But it's time to get right with God. And if you don't, the Lord may take your life. Some of you just said, what? That's what the book says. That's what he said. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But needless to say that John had this guy's attention just like Jesus had the attention of the woman at the well. And the guy breaks down, repenting, weeping. What must I do? What must I do? Some stewardesses are gathered around. They're weeping too. And the presence of God fills that cocktail lounge. And the guy says, I want to get right with God. And Wimber said, you need to repent. You need to put your trust in Jesus. Leads him to the Lord right there in the cocktail lounge. They're having a little church there on the jumbo jet. And Wimber said that the guy in humility and transparency was confessing his sin out loud. And he said to, to John, he said, what do I do? That's my wife sitting back in the seat next to me. And John said, well, you got to go back and tell her. Tell her what's happened here. Confess your sin and get right with God and get right with her. And he said, really? And he said, yeah, you got to do that. So he goes back to his seat, tells his wife what's happened. Wimber said the wife kept looking over across the aisle at him, like, what is going on here? This is the most bizarre flight I've ever been on. She starts to cry. She gives her life to Jesus on the spot right there. The husband leads her to the Lord. I guess she forgives him. I don't know all the details of what's going on, but a kingdom breakthrough on the jumbo plane. And Wimber said they sat back in the seat. They had done what they needed to do at the end of the flight. They got off, they talked briefly. They didn't have a Bible, so John gave them his Bible, said, read the Bible, find a local church, and there you have it. So it's a modern example of a text like this. Now, I wanna say this, I wanna qualify it, okay? And I could do this for the next 20 minutes, but I'm not going to. Is this an exceptional case that I'm sharing with Wimber? Yes. Should we go out into the world, beginning today at lunch, and tell people that we think they're in adultery? Is that the point of the story? No. The point of the story is that God knew that person's heart, their situation, and Wimber didn't bring judgment, he brought love and grace and forgiveness. And that man and his wife became followers of Jesus. That's the point. So I would actually urge you, as your pastor, 
to not go out. This is someone who had walked in this and practiced this for many years. So we don't start here. Do not go out and start asking, Lord, show me the secret sins of someone. That is not the point. As a matter of fact, I would reserve that after you've had many years and many seasons of walking with the Lord, learning to discern his voice. You hear me on this? Notice too, did he tell the man, I see, your, I see adultery over you. Is that what he said? What did he say? Does the name Jane mean something to you? If the guy had leaned back in his seat and said, no, it really doesn't, then Wimber would have said, okay, move on. Low risk. But the man did. He turned absolutely ghost white. And it was a word of knowledge. So the story illustrates many things, and I just want to make sure that we're mature, we're responsible, we're gracious, we're tactful. I mentioned around here, every prophetic word should feel like a hug from the Father, not a poke in the eye. If someone feels poked in the eyeball, then you've done something wrong. All right, the Lord loves us and will grow us and teach us, but just think of every time you share a prophetic word, they should feel embraced by God. They've encountered the grace and love of the Father. And I know some of you are going to leave here with all kinds of questions, and just like when Wimber put that in print in his book, people continued to press up against that and raise questions, but I think it is just like this text here, an example that shakes us, and it should shake us to press in and to have the heart of the Father and to be dependent on God in evangelism. And just imagine, some of us are already doing this, but imagine churches who are doing John 5.19 all through the day. I'm doing what the Father is doing. I'm hearing what he's saying. I'm feeling his heartbeat for this person. Just imagine what that would be like. Communities of people doing this. Passages so rich, talking about worship and spirit and in truth. And I think one of the subtexts here is that prophetic evangelism and worship are interconnected. Do you see that? It's not coincidence. Again, Jesus sees her as a future worshiper. And then he makes some adjustments in her thinking, and he says true worship is empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's not limited to a particular location, whether it's Jerusalem or somewhere in Samaria. You worship in the Holy Spirit wherever you are, whoever you are. It comes from your spirit. It's energized by the Holy Spirit. That's what he's getting at here. He's teaching her how to be a true worshiper. Do you see it? You worship in spirit and you worship in truth. That is in line with the revelation of who God is in Christ. So worship is guided by the spirit who is the spirit of truth. We could look at this in greater detail. I want to end with the final piece here verses 27 through 42. Go home and read it. Over the next few days, what happens is the word spreads about Jesus and many believe because he's doing evangelism this way. He's hearing from the Father. He's reaching out in love to someone on the margins. Revival breaks out. 
The disciples come back. They're marveling. Why are you talking to this woman? She's a Samaritan. And he lets them know that this is like food to him, the Father's food. They come back with lunch, probably in a basket. And he says, I don't even need that. I am so full right now because of what the Father just did with this Samaritan woman. I'm full. I'm satisfied. And he's going to go on and teach them about eating the Father's food as well, doing the Father's will. What a beautiful passage. So I mentioned other Samaritans come to interact directly with Jesus, and they say, we've heard about you. Now we want to interact with you. And he begins to share with them. I was asking the Lord before we break for groups here, and Connie comes up. I was just saying, Lord, what do you want to do this morning? And I, I just kept hearing him say, a fresh impartation for evangelism. So what I, I want to do is I want us to just take a minute here. And if this particularly interests you, just where you're sitting, I'm going to ask you to put your hands out. Don't have to. There's nothing magical about that, but it's just a posture of receiving from the Father. And I ask you, Father, to anoint us afresh today. Spirit of God, rest on us. Anoint us, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Pray that you would fill us with the love of the Father for those around us. Give us your heart, your eyes to see others, your words to speak, your words of grace, that we might share the gospel with power like Jesus did. you would brood over us the rest of the day, even this week, that we would learn from Jesus, the master prophet, the master evangelist. Light a fuse today in us. We pray in your name, Jesus.